Thank you again for the opportunity to uh, s- share with you a bit about Leviticus, to get us thinking about Leviticus. If you were here last Thursday, I summarized Leviticus as God's invitation to all of us to have a vibrant relationship, continual communion with Him. Um, and last week I gave you an overview of the whole book and this is how I summarized the sections uh, with sacrifices, priesthood, principles. And so it speaks to us of a vibrant relationship, the invitation to a vibrant relationship, the importance of religious service, uh, and then how God wants our relationship with Him to affect all of our life, everything uh, that we do. And holiness involves humility, a daily confession. Okay, so if you weren't here last Thursday, uh, you can try and speak to your friends and uh, understand how I came up with that summary. I, before I go into chapter 11 and chapter 17 uh, this evening, I thought I should just put down some principles which I already used in my summary of the book of Leviticus. And some of you may have been thinking about that, so I want to be very explicit as to my understanding of the way we ought to read Leviticus today as scripture. How do we read the Bible? Not just Leviticus. How do we read the Bible, apply the Bible as scripture? When we say as scripture, we mean as something speaking to us, something that is not just for people long ago, but it's meant to teach us today. How do we read Leviticus like that? I want to suggest to you that one very important principle is, is we must learn to read beyond the literal meaning of the words and look for the lasting principle behind scripture. Of course, the interpretation of Scripture, there's so much that could be said. You know, at Trinity Theological College, we have two semesters worth just on how to read Scripture, uh, Old Testament, New Testament. There are many different principles. Tonight, I just want to focus on this particular one, how we need to uh, think beyond the literal to the lasting meaning or the lasting principle behind what Scripture says. Okay, so let me just give you some examples. This is a command that appears in the Bible at least five times in almost exactly the same words in Greek. Greet one another with a holy kiss. So this is a command from the Lord in God's word. Five times in scripture. Romans 16, 16, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 13, 1 Testament. It's an important command. Greet one another with a holy kiss. That's what the Greek says. It's a holy kiss. So we're here together. Can we all obey God's word? I know you all love each other. Please turn around to one another. Greet each other with a holy kiss. After all, you obey the Lord, right? Now the question I put to you is, supposing someone says, no, in my culture we don't really do kissing, handshake. In fact, pastors, most often in Singapore, we just say, let's greet each other with a handshake or something like that. Uh, would we be disobedient to God if we chose a warm handshake instead of a kiss? After all, God's word says kiss. So I hope, uh, my view is that uh, we're, not, we, we're not compelled to have to use a kiss. Uh, what we do is we look beyond the literal meaning of the word, we try and apply it in our current cultural setting, what is the equivalent of a holy kiss in those days? And some cultures today still give a kind of a kiss in the way they greet one another. But if we're living in a setting or in a time or in a culture where we're trying to look for the, the dynamic equivalent of what that, that, 
that command was or the words were. And so for, for most Asians, I think it is, it is a handshake, a warm handshake. But it may be different in different cultures. So this is what I mean by I think we, we are meant to go beyond the literal prescription or the literal words of Scripture and look for the principle that lies behind what is being said. And we apply that principle in an appropriate way for our culture and our time and our setting. Let, I'll give you another example. Exodus chapter 20, part of the Ten Commandments, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Now literally, the word Sabbath is what in English we would say is Saturday. Right? So if you ask a Hebrew in Israel, in Israel, the word Shabbat means Friday evening till Saturday evening. It's, it's effectively our Saturday. So does that mean, according to the Ten Commandments, uh, the, our holy day ought to be Saturday? As you know, there are some groups, uh, there is a group of Christian brothers and sisters, they call themselves the Seventh-day Adventists. So they believe that the, majority, the rest of us have got it wrong by making Sunday <laughs> the day of, of Sabbath. Uh, for them, Saturday is the literal meaning, and so their day of worship is Saturday. So it's true, they are following the literal meaning of the Ten Commandments, which is, remember, Saturday, by keeping it holy. But what we have done, the majority of other Protestant traditions have said they've looked to the principle. The principle is set aside a day for worship, to keep it holy, to, to rest, to remember the Lord. And so we've looked for the principle, and the principle is keep a Sabbath day. Most of our pastors in the Methodist Church do not make Sunday their Sabbath day. They're working very hard on Sunday. Some churches, you have three, four services. So most of our pastors try and have a Sabbath day on Monday, or others maybe Wednesday. Pastor Anthony, what's, what day is your Sabbath? Monday, Monday okay. Young guy? Monday. Also Monday, okay. So, you, you see, but they're not keeping the, they're not obeying the literal command of the Ten Commandments, which is remember Saturday by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. How many of you are still working a six-day week? You know, us pastors are supposed to be... How many of you only five days a week? Oh, thus saith the Lord. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. So you've got to think through. Are we meant to insist, therefore, that everyone really ought to do six days? Otherwise, you know, we're really being lazy. And Or, or is the principle here at that time, that was it? You know, six days. The important emphasis was on making sure you have at least this one day of rest. Okay, so this is how I'm, I'm saying we need to think beyond the literal meaning of the words. There are plenty of examples. Uh, okay, I've already said that this uh, is a five-day work week disobeying Scripture. Jesus in Matthew 5 says, If your right eye ever causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. If your right hand ever causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Thus saith the Lord. Are we meant to apply this literally? If our eye causes us to sin, is Jesus saying, really get an operation and pull it out? Chop off your hand if, it ever, if you ever sin with your right hand. Most Christians throughout history have not applied this word of the Lord literally. 
And I think they, we, we have been right. We have looked for the principle. And what is the principle? The principle is take sin seriously. It's not a light matter. Deal with it seriously. If necessary, take drastic action. But I don't think Jesus meant for us to literally cut off our hands or pull out or, or dig out our eyes if, it, if they ever cause us to sin. The principle is don't be lenient on your sins. Be serious about removing the cause of your sins. And that may mean thinking, what is that particular sin? What, what is it that's causing me to do that? And so how do I deal with it? That's the principle that we're looking for. Not the literal obedience to what the text says. Another example of this is just, as you know, in, uh, it, it, some people do take the commands literally. Uh, but most of us nowadays, I think, correctly say they have misunderstood what their scriptures say. Any of you have trouble with your kids? Teenagers? Disobedient? If a man has a stubborn and rebellious sin who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him or tell him to go and keep tidy his bedroom or whatever, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a profligate and drunkard. Then all the men of his town shall stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. So any of you struggling with rebellious children? Do you think God, and do you even think Moses in Deuteronomy 21 was saying the answer is literally stone him to death? Are we meant to read scripture literally? Or are we meant to ask, what is the point of saying it like this? I suggest to you that you look for the principle. You look beyond literal stoning to the lasting principle, which is rebellious children in your family is not a strictly private affair. You should seek help from the elders, the community, to help in this problem. Counsel, talk, discipline. Ask others in your community to pray for your children. Offer suggestions. Maybe see a family counsellor. Now these are different practical suggestions as you think through what is the principle. The principle is rebellious children is a serious problem. That doesn't just affect your family, it affects the whole community. And so we need to deal with it and we, we need to do something about it. Don't just pretend it's not a problem. What you do about it, I don't think Deuteronomy... Uh, says the simple answer is just stone them. I think he's saying it's a serious thing. Think about what you're meant to do about it. And so talk to people, get various ideas of how you can try and uh, uh, deal with this problem to try and alleviate the problem. So we look beyond the literal words to the lasting principle and we try and apply it. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 13 and 14 says, Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you punish him with the rod... He will not die. So punish him with the rod and save his soul from death. So literally it is, how do you deal with children? Punish them with a rod. Does that mean Christian teachers or Christian parents must use the rod to discipline the child? Now there are some Christian churches or teachers who say, yes, this is the correct way. The, the biblical way is you must use the rod. What if you're in a particular country, and there are many countries in the world like that, and it's true already now in MOE Singapore, where you're not allowed to use the rod. right? You're not allowed to use the cane to punish. Must the Christian say, but 
my first allegiance is to the Bible. So even though it's against the law, I want to obey the Lord. And the Lord says, I must use the rod. That's an attempt to try and apply Scripture very literally and strictly. I suggest to you that this is not the way God wants us to interpret His Word. It's the principle that we are looking for. And, and what is appropriate in one era may change over the years. So the principle is don't be afraid to discipline your children. Don't be afraid as parents to apply discipline. Now, what type of discipline may change from time to time? It may change because of the age of the child. At a certain age, you would discipline them in a certain way, which may no longer be appropriate when the child is at another age, right? That's the wisdom that you need to apply and think through. Uh, and, and so we always are looking for the principle and then trying to think how best to apply that principle. 1 Corinthians 14, 34-35, literally says, women should remain silent in the churches. Okay, we're in church now. <laughs> they are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, make sure when Pastor Gordon asks any questions that none of them speak. <laughs> they should remain quiet in church. They should ask their own husbands at home. So only the men are allowed to ask questions. Is that what this text means? For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now, this particular example is still debated hotly between churches. Most of the earlier ones I gave, I hope, I think the majority of the Christian churches understand, yes, it's the principle that's most important. You might know that there's, in this particular case, there's still some churches who, who feel that this is, we should apply this as literally as possible. And so for some churches, they don't allow women to speak in church in the sense that they cannot speak publicly. So there are no women pastors, no women worship leaders in church, etc. Why? Uh, because Paul says so in 1 Corinthians 14. So this one is a, is a bit tricky, but again, I suggest you, and, and I come from the Methodist church, and you, as you know, the Methodist church, we have women pastors. We celebrate women pastors. And by the way, we, we need more women pastors. Right? So I hope you will prayerfully consider uh, because uh, the, many of our churches, we have more women in our church than we have men. And so we, we need more women pastors. Right? So do encourage. Okay, but coming back to this, we, we've got to try and look beyond the literal words to the principles. All right? Otherwise, if you stick to a literal, then you know, women, no, no, no noise. <laughs> Even, let me just say, even the churches who try to apply this literally don't actually apply it literally. They interpret silent as don't be pastors, don't be leaders, but they still let the women talk. <laughs> they still let the women, right? They, they, so, yeah, see, isn't that church? So anyway, so I'm just trying to say, think about how we are meant to apply scripture with wisdom. So it is what, what is the principle of the logic underlying the command? That is what we must always be going, uh, uh, looking for. What is the uh, principle? Of, so I'm not here to speak on 1 Corinthians 14, so I'll, I'll slide over that now. But uh, 
questions, these are the sort of questions we would ask. Is this command still applicable today? And literally, is this command for women to remain silent always applicable today? Literally. Does silent, in the word used by Paul in Greek, does it really mean silent as we understand it in English? Or does it mean calm and composed? Let women remain calm. If so, then we would still ask, why aren't the men told to be calm? Why aren't the men told to be silent or composed? We're going to have to try and answer those questions. Whichever way you try and work at it, you have to be, if you're honestly trying to get behind the principle or the meaning of Scripture, these are the questions you must ask and try and answer. What was the specific context which inspired this command? Okay, so these are the ways we study Scripture carefully, we think it through carefully, we share with one another, we pray about it. So that's important. We must think, though, beyond the literal and try and get to the underlying, lasting principle and apply that into our context and era. Okay, any questions or comments before I get to, to uh, back to Leviticus? I've already done this with you. Oops, yeah, I thought I blacked this out. Any questions? If not, then one... Yeah, okay, sorry, ladies are allowed to ask questions. It's alright, okay? I, I think it's... <laughs> You'll see in my notes, I've also given you uh, some brief pointers because someone always asks when I'm talking about it, how then do we know which part of Scripture to read literally and which part to not read literally but to look for the principle? And so there are various possible principles and I've listed them down for you. But uh, since tonight my main goal is to get into Levit Leviticus, I won't go through each of these things uh, unless there's time later and you do want me to go through it. But let me just point out the first point there. There are cases within the Bible itself where the biblical writer is applying an Old Testament scripture and he doesn't apply it literally. So in other words, what I've said, you know, why I believe we shouldn't read scripture, we're not meant to read scripture so literally. I see the example in scripture itself. Let me give you one. Paul. The Apostle Paul and the way he interprets or applies Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 4. Deuteronomy 25 verse 4 says, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. The word used in Deuteronomy 24 is a standard word for an ox. An ox is an ox is an ox. <laughs> right? And in that farming culture... Uh, I guess the idea was don't muzzle the ox. So even as he's threshing and he's walking through the field, he can eat if he wants <laughs> some of the food that's around or the grain that's being threshed on the ground. So how do we apply that to ourselves today? I don't have an ox. Well, if you're just saying Scripture is only meant to be read literally, then this is only a, a, applicable to Christian farmers who have oxen. See, so the trouble with a literal reading of Scripture is it narrows the application too much. What one must be looking for is the principle behind it. But anyhow, let's see how Paul applies it. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 says, It is written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. And Paul asks, Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely God says this for us. Doesn't he? Us, not just oxen, but it's meant for us. Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes like an ox should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. 
should be able to eat some of the spoils, if you like, on the ground and the grain. My point here now is that Paul takes this passage in Deuteronomy 25, which literally speaks about farmers and the way they should care for their oxen and when they use the ox. And Paul applies it beyond just the literal meaning uh, and expands it in a, in a more spiritual way. He, he looks for the principle, you should care for the person or the animal that is working so hard for you. Just like that ox works so hard for you, make sure you're kind to that ox and let that ox eat. People, your workers working hard for you, make sure you are kind, considerate, making sure that they get their... Uh, you pay them properly and, and appropriately, etc. So that's how he, he takes that principle and he expands it. Okay? So even within scripture, uh, uh, we, we know how other scriptural writers don't always apply scripture literally. The New Testament does not apply Old Testament laws literally. We'll see Mark chapter 7, 19 later on the food laws, the way uh, Jesus deals with the clean and unclean food laws. It also does not apply it literally. And so we should be beware applying scripture in a literal way to condemn other people. Uh, Romans chapter 14 verse 3, I have it up here for you on the screen. Paul writes, and this has to do with food and so it relates again to what we will be uh, looking at in a little while in Leviticus 11. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not eat everything. The one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. So in other words, Paul was also dealing with the issue where some of the Christians were arguing, hey, the, the, the Old Testament says we shouldn't eat everything. That says, no, no, all foods are clean as long as you give gratitude. to So there were difference of opinions there. And, and Paul was saying, don't, don't condemn one another. Stop passing judgment, he says in verses 13 to 15. Stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. Paul is talking about food laws here. No food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. I think Paul would also say, do not by your not eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. The whole point is the principle of love. So whether you choose to eat or do not eat, be, be concerned not to stumble or or offend someone. So you're always concerned for the other. But in itself, it's really neutral. You can decide whether you want to eat this or you don't want to eat this. So that's that principle of love that Paul talks about. Okay? Don't condemn. Respect one another's choices in this matter. So with humility and with prayer, what we do is we draw general theological and pastoral principles from Scripture. That is how Scripture is meant to be read. And so we, 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 with humility, we pray and we wait and we try and sense the wisdom and the, of the principle behind scriptural commands. Okay, any questions or comments? I've got three lectures for you. This was the end, lecture one. Uh, two more lectures, one in Leviticus 11, one in Leviticus 17. So half an hour, I've just got it right. But I'm, I'm happy to take a quick question before we return to Leviticus. 
And if there's time at the end, you can ask questions on any of the three uh, presentations. Okay, Leviticus 11. Oh, sorry, yes. Uh, yep, yeah, John. Thank you. The question was, so what if somebody asks you, you know, you're looking for the logic or the principle behind the text, not the literal meaning. If somebody asks you, how do you know that your logic or your principle is correct or is what God intended? It, yes, are you rationalizing it? So my answer would be, number one, what is the alternative? So the alternative is you try and apply everything literally. But you know, in any interpretation, what is literal, you're also going to be reading it in a certain way. What is literal is also, chances are it's not going to be that strictly literal either. Um, Read each other with a holy kiss, must that, you know, what type of kiss? Number two, I, I said, you talk about how do I know it's scriptural? Well, I've got examples in scripture itself where someone like Paul and Jesus are quoting or applying an Old Testament scripture, which is also scripture, and they're applying it not literally. They're applying it non-literally. So within scripture, I've got a principle that, you know, we can do that. Of course, one could say, but how, how do you know you're right? Well, that's why there needs to be humility. That's why I think there are still differences in trying how to apply scripture today. It's and we'll come to some of them. The woman being silent in church, for instance, is one clear example. A large portion of the church today still believes there shouldn't be women pastors. Right? Uh, so there's disagreement. So, yes, we're in, why God hasn't made that clear, I mean, I, I, that I don't know. But I, 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 I do think we are challenged and we must try and interpret the logic, the rational as best we can. Uh, so I mean that's I'm saying what is the the alternative must is 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 what is to just read it woodenly and can you really do that cut off your hand pull out your eye so the longer answer was you look at some principles literal or not and that was that section where I had five uh, sort of other points which help us decide. You know, and, and check one another. This is why I think it shouldn't be literal. This is why I think it should be more literal rather than less literal. And we, if we can talk with one another respectfully and humbly, we try and discern the principle and the wisdom behind something. So punish your kid with a cane. So even if we may disagree, surely we can agree that the principle is the importance of some kind of discipline. And so even if you are the literal one, no, it has to be with cane, I'm ready to go to jail for it. At least you respect the other guy. Says, but at least, as long as you're disciplining your child, you know, at least we've got we've got the the, the we can at least agree on that part of the principle. Uh, so. Anyway, so things to chew over. <laughs> Leviticus 11 uh, is going to raise more questions. I'm going to try and uh, tell you what are the principles behind the clean and unclean food, and I'm telling you straight out. Nobody knows for sure. <laughs> Nobody agrees. I'm going to give you five plausible principles that in my view, I think all five uh, probably apply, but they don't all, it's not the same principle that lies behind every particular food. Okay, but, uh, but this is part of the struggle that we work with. There are a number of these issues. My own answer, my own guess as to why God has left Scripture like this for us is because, number one, He wants us to prayerfully and humbly read His Word. And, 
and prayerfully and humbly get along with one another and not fight with one another. We need to learn to do what, what him, Paul himself says openly in that famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13 that talks about love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is, uh, does not bear hurt. And he says, and he's doing this in a context where Christians were arguing over the meaning of what is right and wrong. When they were arguing over spiritual gifts and speaking in tongues and prophecy. And he says, now we only know in part. None of us sees perfectly or clearly. We see dimly as through a blurred glass or mirror. Now we know in part. And so that's his plea. Love. Love. Be patient. Bear with one another. And I think that's what we badly need to learn uh, to do, especially in today's world where everybody is trumpeting their own particular opinion as the only truth. Okay, let's go into Leviticus 11. Uh, you can think about it as well because the same sort of questions arise. A summary of the chapter, I think I've given it to you there in your outline, uh, basically it goes through what land animals you can eat and those you cannot eat, then sea creatures, then birds of the air, and then insects. And then uh, verses 24 to 31, some instructions on when people touch dead creatures, what do you have, what happens when... Oh, uh, when dead creatures touch things, what happens to that thing that is touched? Clean animals that die, creatures that crawl, and then a motivation for holiness is God's character. You shall be holy because I, the Lord, am holy. Uh, and then a, a summary at the end of the chapter, clean edible versus unclean unedible. Let me just uh, take you briefly through some of these verses. Verses 2 to 4, we read, Say to the Israelites, of all the animals that live on the land, these are the ones you may eat. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof. In other words, the foot is sort of divided. And that chews the cud means they, they eat something in the stomach and then it, it comes back up to the mouth and they chew, keep chewing, chewing. And there are some that only chew the cud or only have a divided hoof, but you must not eat them. The camel, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. So it is ceremonially unclean for you. So here's a picture of, on, the, on your left side, is you've got no split hoofs. On, then the middle picture, that's an example of a split hoof, where the, you know, there's a gap in, in, in the feet. So no chewing, if the animal doesn't chew the cud, it doesn't chew a long time and bring, it, bring from stomach back to the mouth and eat again, uh, and no split hoofs, then they are unclean. You must have both of those characteristics according to Leviticus 11, 3 to 7. You must, the animal must both chew the cud as well as have split hoofs. Then you can eat those animals. They are considered, uh, in the translation, most commonly used clean versus unclean. So that's what the Bible says. But we, if we're trying to get to the principle, we must ask why. And unfortunately, we don't always have scripture. God doesn't give us the, the why for every animal. Just tells us these animals clean, these unclean. So that would mean pigs, uh, because they have, although they have cloven hoofs, they do not chew the cud, right? They just eat and it goes down and that's it, <laughs> right? So unfortunately, I mean, well, unfortunately, if you like stew yolk, but otherwise, uh, uh, pigs form unclean foods. <laughs> okay. How about for the sea uh, creatures in the sea? 
If they don't have scales, most fish have scales, but if they don't have scales, they are considered unclean. If they don't have fins, most fish have fins, but if this sea creature doesn't have fins, they're unclean. So, sadly, crabs have no scales, <laughs> no fins, <laughs> lobsters, prawns. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> in the air what we are given is just a list of prohibited birds there is no list of what is okay it's just these are the birds that you should, should not eat the ostrich, the horned owl there's a list there and some of the Hebrew words uh, Hebrew scholars debate because you know we're not quite sure which animal it's referring to but we know what the Hebrew word for chicken is. And it is not mentioned, praise the Lord. So chicken is clear. <laughs> you can definitely eat chicken. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Flying insects that have four legs are unclean. Unless the legs are jointed. So again, it's, it's odd. I mean, we, we, we just don't know why God inspired Moses to think along these lines. Okay? But this is what the scripture says. The basic meaning of the words. So, there is some debate among scholars as to which creatures are actually named. You know, is it this kind of owl or only that kind of special species of owl? But there's much more debate and disagreement over why there is any of these restrictions. What is the principle between clean and unclean? Do not eat and eat. Why some you can eat? Why some you cannot eat? Now I'm going to take you through five different carefully thought through principles that scholars down through the centuries have suggested. I've already told you, I don't think any one of those views has won unanimous support amongst Christian or Bible readers. All of them, I think, have logical or rational principles behind them, but none seem to fit for all of the creatures as one principle that covers everything. Let me quickly take you through some of them. Oh, uh, by the way, since we are Methodists, I thought I'd give you a quote from John Wesley's own notes on Leviticus 11. The reason, the reason for why some foods are clean and some foods are unclean, that's, that's the context of this paragraph, the reason must be resolved into the will of the lawgiver, which is another way of Wesley saying, only God knows. <laughs> right? The reason must be resolved into the will of the lawgiver. Although interpreters, we can guess. Interpreters guess and I presumably because Wesley puts this down, Wesley was open to the, this guess. Interpreters guess that God would hereby signify, oh here he's talking about the split hoofs. God would hereby signify their duties by the first, the first category which is you must have split hoofs. The importance of discerning between good and evil. So the split hoofs speaks to us of the importance of discerning between good and evil. And by the second principle, you must chew the cud, the animal must chew the cud to be clean. It, that, that duty of recalling God's word to our minds and meditating upon it. In other words, maybe that's why these animals were considered clean. So they threw the cut so that we think about discerning good and evil. Uh, sorry, split hoof so they discern good and evil. Through the cut, importance of meditating and meditating and thinking and thinking and thinking about scripture. Okay? Uh, these were some of the ancient approaches that Wesley was building on. Others put it like this, uh, why is it pigs are unclean? Because they're teaching us don't be filthy as pigs wallowing in the mud. Don't be timid or promiscuous as rabbits. <laughs> uh, or don't be bent or twisted by crime like camels. This is Matthew Henry, a, a well-known Bible commentator. So he tried to make sense of these laws. 
Chewing the cud, the importance of meditation. John Wesley seemed to be in favor of that sort of idea. Here's another quote. Fish with rough scales. Why are they considered clean with fish with scales? Uh, so this is one interpreter's suggestion. Fish with rough scales are considered clean just as persons with austere, rough, unpolished, steadfast and grace traits are commended. Fish without scales, on the other hand, are considered unclean just as loose, fickle, insincere and effeminate traits are censured. So I think Beltran's question here applies. Here's this guy who's just come up with a principle that... But then, you see, it's, for us to ask, does it link? Do we think it makes sense? And, and, and so it may not be as persuasive to everybody. And so we have these difficulties. But these are devoted, devout uh, readers of the Bible in the past who have tried to get behind the principle that is meant to teach us today. Now I'm going to give you five, more, five plausible principles in addition to those sort of other sort of principles and try and explain them to you. One, the suggestion is we are not meant to know the reason why some are considered clean, some unclean. It's just meant to emphasize God wanted the Israelites to be different. So distinctive. So I've used the word peculiar because I'm trying to make all five principles start with the letter P. The, challenge, the reason God told them to eat some things and not eat some things is because by the type of diet you have or do not have, people know you. You become distinctive. You know, uh, you are who you eat. or uh, And so, you know, certain, the idea is certain people are known because this is the way they, their food diet is. And so perhaps that was what the principle is, why God gave these food laws. It was a call for us to be distinctive, to be different. Um, the analogy, of course, isn't uh, uh, complete because there are reasons why surgeons... Don't drink alcohol before surgeries because they want to make sure they don't mess things up. Or pilots are not allowed to drink alcohol before they fly. Uh, Methodist pastors is perhaps more of a picture. Methodist pastors aren't supposed to drink. That's supposed to be distinctive about Singapore Methodist pastors anyway. Our Methodist colleagues in UK and America have changed that law. They've allowed themselves to, to drink now. Okay, but, 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 you know, anyway, the point is, we're not trying to say that one animal is more immoral or whatever. It's just that we have this diet as a, as a distinctive mark, a peculiarity of your identity. Is one suggestion as to why there were these food laws. Another principle is that perhaps the animals that, or creatures that were considered unclean were used in other religious practices, pagan worship practices. And so maybe the, the principle was avoid foods or creatures that are used in non-Israelite worship, non-Israelite uh, religions, pagan worship. So, for instance, we know that pigs were used in Egyptian and Canaanite rituals. So, could that be the reason why uh, Israelites were, were told not to touch pigs and not to deal with pigs like that, not to eat them? If so, then the principle is to be to maintain true worship uh, to the Lord. Don't don't uh, get mixed up with other types of worship practiced by other religions. Right? So that would be the principle uh, that we're meant to learn from this distinction between clean and unclean creatures. Peculiar faith, pagan worship practices, 
Personal hygiene is another one that's quite popular. The Lord knows that certain creatures, if you eat them, it's not good for your health. Uh, and so he said, don't eat those. So, for instance, they say uh, pork more easily carries bacteria, etc. Uh, some food, shellfish, etc. carry bacteria more easily. So maybe the Lord was giving good health advice, telling the Israelites, don't eat these things because the chances of you getting sick and unwell much higher if you eat these sort of things. So it, here was a concern. Of God's, by, God, by giving these laws, was concerned for their health. Practical wisdom. Okay. Fourth suggestion. Perhaps this was just meant to promote order, the importance of maintaining order and preserving norms. And so in this theory, the clean animals are the ones that are tame, whereas the unclean animals are those that are wild. Tame or domesticated versus out in the open wild. So the theory being the tame animals speak of animals that are now orderly. And then also if you're going to eat them because they're clean, there's personal costs because you're going to eat your domesticated animals, you know, your favorite, your favorite sheep or whatever. And so there's this, the cost of eating and sacrifice. Uh, this theory tries to say that this, it, it, what God is trying to teach us is it's important to maintain certain orders or categories. There's normal and there's abnormal. So uh, re let's recognize that there's certain things that are more orderly and normal. And so it's the importance of preserving norms. In life. Don't let everything be wild and everyone do whatever they want is the principle that we're meant to learn from this. Promote order and preserve norms. The one that's much more popular now, one would understand this in our current climate, a green climate, is that these laws were meant to help us protect the ecosystem. Importance of stewardship over creation. In this theory, the animals that are considered unclean and therefore prohibited, and therefore not to be killed, because you, you're not going to eat them, right? So why kill them? They become protected. So in other words, actually it's not saying that these are bad fellas. God made them unclean so that, that the Israelites wouldn't exploit and kill them, and they, they're allowed to, you know, you don't touch them, so they, they survive. They are protected. They, are, they become rest they're restricted because they're unclean, and by restricting uh, you are actually protecting them. Okay? No scales on the fish, no protection, unclean, prohibited, they become protected. So it was out of concern to preserve certain species that the Lord said, don't touch these, regard them as unclean, and then uh, that species would survive. So in other words, it's a positive thing on, their, on behalf of the so-called uh, unclean uh, creature. Okay, so these are principles. Let me just give you some of the rejoinders. Some of you, I'm sure, have already got in your head. Peculiar faith. Uh, this is the, the principle that said God gave it so that, you know, uh, uh, it would be distinctive for Israel. But there were many other cultures that also did not eat pork. Okay, so how distinctive would that be for Israel? The, the principle of, okay, don't mix uh, with pagan practices, don't use creatures that are used in other religions for their worship. But not every unclean food in the list in Leviticus was used in other religions. There are a lot of other unclean 
things in the list in Leviticus which as we don't see as being used by the other religions in their worship. So that principle doesn't cover all the unclean creatures that are mentioned in Leviticus. How about personal hygiene? Possibly, but then why doesn't God just give them better cooking laws? <laughs> you know I mean, if the point was not to, uh, to eat certain things because of health, couldn't he just have taught them how to cook, cook it a bit better or whatever? Uh, promote order, importance of preserving norms, but the trouble with this theory is it's a bit arbitrary. What is abnormal or what is unnatural? Which animal is considered normal? Which is considered abnormal? Uh, it's, it's arbitrary in many cases. Uh, so, instance, one scholar who tries to promote this view, she thinks it's abnormal for a creature to have a bent back, like a camel. But is it really abnormal? Uh, you know, how do you decide that that's abnormal? For the camel, it's normal. But anyway, so it's tricky. So, it's, it, in a sense, it's a bit arbitrary. How about protect the ecosystem? But one could ask, were the clean foods less prone to exploitation and extinction. Remember in this view, the unclean foods are protected. You call them unclean so people are not allowed to, won't kill them for their own purposes to eat. But were the clean foods less prone to exploitation and extinction? Were or are the unclean pigs, rabbits, really in danger of extinction? <laughs> you, know, you know, they're in the category of don't touch, right? Uh, are they uh, under the prone to extinction list? No, I don't think so. The rabbits are doing quite well. <laughs> so again, so it's hard. So it, okay, although I'm making jokes, my point really is that there's been no answer that anyone has come up with that that answers all our questions and raises. So we, as John Wesley says, we are in the stage of guessing. Okay. Okay. I said to you before that perhaps these different reasons, some of them apply for certain creatures but don't apply for, for every. So perhaps there's a bit of something to learn from all of these uh, principles. Uh, that I don't think there's a need to assume that there was only one reason for all. And I, might, I don't think anyone will be 100% certain they know the exact principle that lay behind each particular prohibition. Right? Just one last point before I pause for questions. Is the translation which is found in most of our English Bibles, they use clean and unclean, is it a helpful translation? On the one hand, it is a fairly literal translation of the Hebrew word. Uh, but the trouble when we hear clean and unclean, we think unclean is, is a very negative connotation, almost immoral to be despised. Whereas I, I think when you read Leviticus, there's no suggestion that these animals are, are horrible or terrible or evil. Right? So can we find a word that doesn't convey this negative? And so some have tried to use the word taboo. These creatures shall be taboo or special. <laughs> you know how language, we've also sometimes changed to use special to try and take away the negative connotation of certain things, right? Special needs, etc. Restricted is one that I tend to favor. These animals shall be considered restricted for you. I guess I'm being a little more influenced by that sort of protect the ecosystem kind of view. Ring fence. <laughs> they shall be ring fence. You know, don't you? Anyway, so I uh, just give you some idea. We, 
we, I, I think, generally agree that we shouldn't uh, uh, assume a, a negative sort of, uh, in terms of immorality assumed uh, on that creature because it's considered unclean. Okay, any questions or comments? If we cannot answer in detail the, the questions we have, can we at least make a general theological reflection on why there are these laws in Scripture? I, I made this point last week. It at least speaks to us that God, in talking and asking us to be holy, shows us that holiness is concerned with a very practical, everyday matter of our diet and our food. And it's part of that big theological principle, holiness is meant to cover every aspect of our lives. Okay? Our whole, our, even our eating, uh, and, and the way we relate with people, etc. And although, at the, you know, when we read Leviticus, we think it's a bit odd. If you think about it, food, there are food laws that even in our culture are very important and we feel important to maintain. So we have things like avoid certain foods which may be bad or unclean for you, expiry dates, etc. Beware overeating. Beware undereating. Now the issue of food engineering is becoming a, a big issue as well. Food wastage. Trading in endangered species. These are all some of the possible principles that come out of uh, our reflecting on, on this portion of Scripture. Okay? And so they all have some relevance, potentially have some relevance for the way we conduct our lives and our, our policies in terms of food trade. Let me quickly move on. It's 5 to 9 because we've got one more chapter to do. How does the New Testament apply these food laws? Okay, so we've been trying to understand Leviticus. How does the New Testament apply it? Well, firstly, it's quite clear the food laws that are found in Leviticus are not pressed, not enforced in the New Testament. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus, uh, when, when challenged about uh, the food law, says, Are you so dumb, dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside, food, can defile them? Eating, what, it's not eating that defiles you. For what you eat doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. And the, the inspired biblical writer, Mark, puts his comment, Jesus, in saying this, declared all foods clean. So if you believe, as I believe, that Mark is an inspired writer of Scripture, then his view is that Jesus declared all foods clean. So the New Testament certainly seems to not apply the food laws of the Old Testament literally. We've read Romans 14.3 earlier. The food laws are meant to be applied with love not condemnation. So if you want to eat everything because all foods are clean, don't you dare ridicule or show contempt to the, the other believer who, no, no, I, I, I still think, because I don't understand the principle, I, I want to avoid pork. I, wanna, I don't want to have crab. Don't look down on one another. Don't condemn each other and vice versa. Don't say, I'm following scripture, that's why I don't eat crab. You horrible chap, you eat anything, you horrible... So that's not the attitude we should have. That's what Paul is trying to say. Uh, 
Romans 14 verse 14, I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Paul is trying to get the priorities right. So don't get so hung up over this eating and drinking thing. What's more important is righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. So let's get our priorities straight and not get hung up and fight and divide churches over these details of food. Fourth, don't be spiritually bullied by literal, literalistic Pharisees. That's what the scripture says. Do not eat. Colossians 2 verses 16 to 23. Paul says, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. Or with regard to a religious festival, whether you observe this in this way or not, a new moon, celebration or a Sabbath day, which day should be the Sabbath? Should it be Saturday, Sunday or Monday? Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. See what the Word of God through the Apostle Paul says? These sort of people who say, say rule, do this, do this. It sounds, oh, very good, man. holy means cannot do this, all these restrictions. But Paul is saying they've missed the point. It's not the priority that God is concerned about. Okay, and So Paul says, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. So let's not be spiritually bullied by those who claim to be super holy and applying scripture in a literal condemning way. 1 Timothy 4.4, in case you're not convinced, yet another verse. The Spirit clearly says that in the later times, some people will be like this. They will follow deceiving spirits and things thought by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars. These strong words. These so-called teachers forbid people to marry. They order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So it does look as if Paul and the writers uh, here in the New Testament were facing some of the issues that are still present today. People saying, cannot eat this. You and this is the way the New Testament writers responded. Okay? Uh, and I believe the New Testament is part of the Word of God. So let's pray for humility and wisdom in applying Scripture today. And let us give thanks to God for food, that there is so much good food that we can eat. Okay. 902, any questions? Yeah, um, just one question. Yes. Sure. Okay, the question was, shouldn't we condemn uh, the exploitation of certain animals like whaling, sh sharks, etc., right? Uh, so yes, we would do so though on the principle of we're meant uh, not to be greedy, we're meant to be stewards, we're called in scripture to be stewards of creation and not exploiters. Uh, we would not condemn it on the basis of, you know, God says do not eat this particular animal or whatever. We're looking there for the principle of, okay, let's, let's not be greedy, let's care for the earth, let's care for creation and, and we, we do it on that. But again, I suppose... The other question is what we mean by condemn and how does one condemn, criticize, 
Does condemn mean violence? You know, you know. So there's cert- again, there's certain ways in which one does speak up against something. But there, again, Scripture elsewhere will tell us certain things we shouldn't do in the way we try and push forward what we believe to be the truth and to be the correct way. So again, there needs uh, that whole whole. But in short answer to your question, yes, I think uh, we we certainly, as the the Bible tells us, humanity is meant to be a stewards of creation rather than exploiters and uh, uh, de- destroyers of God's good creation. All right. 9.08, I better begin. Leviticus 17. Just give you an outline of the chapter. Verses 1 to 9 gives us some uh, verses on sacrificing animals. Then verses 10 to 16, uh, quite a long section on not eating blood. And, and, and it ends, the last two verses, with don't touch dead bodies. Okay, what's the principle behind the prescription? So, uh, as I began this evening, that's what we're looking for as we study Scripture. Uh, verses uh, 3 to 4, Any Israelite who sacrifices an ox, a lamb, or a goat in the camp or outside of it, instead of bringing it to the entrance to the tent of meeting, to present it as an offering to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, that person shall be considered guilty of bloodshed. They have shed blood and must be cut off from their people. Now, sacrificing an ox, a lamb or goat is a good thing. Remember, so Leviticus does talk about the importance of regular sacrifices. But here now is an instruction, make sure that you don't sacrifice it anywhere you want. Right? You bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting or the tabernacle, you are presenting it to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord. If you don't do that, you shall be considered guilty of murder. They shed blood and must be cut off from the people. So quite strong words again. What's the principle behind this prescription? Before I click, any guesses? Now as we're trying to exercise, supposing now you're learning, having to try and think, what might be the principle behind this prescription? Say again. Yes, the intention should be according to the. According to the okay, go on, talk to yourself, work it through. This is the way you gotta chew the cud. <laughs> Keep chewing the cud. That's how it works. Yes, I think you're right. So, so what is the intention of a sacrifice? So, anyway, anyone else? Any thoughts? Sorry? Gerda, you were saying something? No unintentional. You're not trying to just guess my blank, right? <laughs> you got to think about... Okay, anyway. <laughs> what might be the principle behind a prescription? Why must the animals be sacrificed in the tabernacle only? Right? Because it's meant for sacrifice. And so the tabernacle and sacrifice is offered to... The Lord, right. So in other words, it, it seems maybe the principle is, you know, it's not, you want it, uh, you must be killed at the tabernacle, not anywhere. Uh, is, could one of the principles be no unregulated animal consumption? So you know, if people are doing it anywhere they want, it's hard to regulate. But if everyone has to bring to the tabernacle, maybe the priest then can regulate how many are, are being sacrificed. That could be one principle. The other one, I think, is the one that... Uh, Kim has just uh, suggested. Note the emphasis on to the Lord. This is so the Israelites will bring to the Lord the sacrifice. The sacrifices are to the Lord. They're not just for your own sake. 
uh, you must bring them to the priest who uh, in some ways symbolizes or represents the Lord, that is to the Lord, at the entrance to the tent of meeting and sacrifice them as fellowship offerings. The priest is to splash the blood against the altar of the Lord. So yes, remember, sacrifices are meant to be done in communion with the Lord. So bringing them to the tabernacle, bringing them to the priest reminds us that we're doing this. It reminds us about our constant communion that we're supposed to have with the Lord. You're not just going to do it on your own or whatever. So I, I think that's partly uh, a, a good reason why whenever we have this practice, whenever we eat, we pause to, to give thanks to the Lord. It reminds us, yeah, yeah, I, I, you know, Lord, you're with me and I, I give thanks for that. Okay, so that could be the principle. Remember that uh, we're thanking the Lord for every special meal. No unregulated animal consumption. We thank the Lord. So these are some of the possible principles that lie behind this. Look also how on, on the emphasis of uh, it's to the priest as important for regulating. So is this perhaps then going a bit further, does this promote the importance of priests to regulate uh, the, the worship and the sacrificial system, dedication to the Lord. So putting it this way, regulating, is there a need to regulate true worship practices? And so you need to bring it before the priest. So the priest, as it were, make sure that the way worship is conducted, the way sacrifices are offered is correct or pleasing to the Lord. So the importance in Leviticus of the priest to officiate and to oversee uh, it's not true in all Christian traditions today, but in the Methodist tradition, this remains part of the principle that we try to apply, where Holy Communion is only meant to be regulated or administered by what we call the pastor who is an elder. Right? Uh, so some say, ah, all these human rules, all of us are priests. So there are some Christian traditions that emphasize anybody can conduct Holy Communion, you can do it on your own, in your own house. And there are some there, they want to emphasize that God is available everywhere. Um, and there are, I suppose, you know, there is that truth in the sense, the priesthood of all believers, right? But the Methodists, we, we, we are still keeping on this particular principle. Uh, so to make sure that things don't get totally free for all, everyone does whatever they want, we, we, we still preserve this principle of the importance of uh, the pastor, the elder presiding at Holy Communion. Uh, there is also a reference to they must no longer offer any of their sacrifices to the goat idols. So perhaps this was also uh, uh, part of the, the reason for making sure you bring your animal to be sacrificed at the tent. Uh, you, don't, you, you mustn't offer sacrifices to other idols. So you know if you're doing all, everyone doing things out on their own, who knows what their fellows are doing in their own, in their own observance of the ritual. Are they actually sacrificing to other gods? So by Making sure no one is allowed to be burning animals all over the place. Uh, it's easier to regulate. Perhaps that was behind it as well. So, there, summary of the reasons. No unregulated consumption. Promote regulation and dedicate priestly regulation. Prohibit animal sacrifices to other gods. So these could be some of the principles that lie behind this chapter and, and how we could uh, perhaps pod positively appropriate some of those things for our own practice and our own worship. Okay, So guard against false worship practices, no sacrifices to God, goat idols. Four plausible principles from this first half of Leviticus 17. 
Again, I'm not saying these are the only plausible principles. If you chew the cud and you keep thinking about it and you discuss it, there may be some other positive things that one might come out as you look at various points in the text. So just a suggestion, should priests and pastors today be more directly involved in regulating our worship services? Uh, you know, uh, so certainly in Leviticus, the days of Leviticus, uh, they were. So perhaps that's not so bad a thing. Now we like, of course, we like to say, you know, let the lay people do because everyone can play a part. But maybe we mustn't go overboard and let the priests who are supposed to be more theologically trained and who are supposed to have chewed the cud more than most <laughs> to also put some sort of input and guidance into uh, what, what is good to do in worship and what perhaps is not so good. Questions or comments? Let me just finish with blood and then we'll see how much time there is left. Verses 10 to 14. God says, I will set my face against any Israelite or any foreigner residing among them who eats blood. I will cut them off from the people. For the life of a creature is in the blood and I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore I say to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood, nor may any foreigner residing among you eat blood. Okay, so it's very clear, don't eat blood. But why? What's the principle that lies behind this command, don't eat blood? So we, we try and chew the card, we look at the text carefully. Are there clues as to the reason why one shouldn't eat blood? Does anyone, anyone spot anything? Life is in the blood. Okay, so blood symbolizes the life of a creature. So presumably then, by not eating blood, it's a way of reminding you, Blood is very precious. It's, it represents life, almost literally. So it's a way of respecting life. It's a way of not, uh, uh, you know, pay, so it is respecting life. Okay? Don't eat the blood. Uh, I was going to say, do you see two repetitions in the text? Obviously, some of you have already seen it, but I'll just put it up anyway. There are, the, 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 the phrases are repeated. One of them is that one we've just talked about. The life is in the blood. Life of a creature is in the blood. You see, it's mentioned three times in these verses. For the life of a creature is in the blood. The life of every creature is its blood. So, yes, I think that's one of the principles that lies behind it. Blood represents life. And so don't eat blood presumably means respect life or treat life as sacred. Uh, and, and so not eating blood is meant to remind you of the, the sanctity of life. Another repetition is the word atonement. I've given it to you, blood, to make atonement for yourselves. It is the blood that makes atonement. So here in this text, what does blood symbolize? Yes, life, but it's also the means of atonement. And so putting that together, I think there are two reasons at least given in Leviticus for why we shouldn't eat blood. One, it's because it reminds us to respect the cost of atoning for our lives, for our souls. An animal has had to die in order for us to, uh, to symbolize the atonement that we receive from God, to make atonement for one's life. So, that's, so we don't eat blood in, in, and we respect the cost of atoning for our souls. Second, to teach us not to eat or devour life. Life is in the blood, so we don't eat blood uh, and it's our way of respecting the importance of life and the value of all life because the life of every creature is its blood. 
So studying Leviticus, there would seem to be these are two of the reasons that underlie the command, don't eat blood. Respect the value of life, appreciate the cost of atonement for our souls and our sins. So those are the principles. Give, let's give thanks to God for his atonement for, of our lives. It's a very costly uh, sacrifice that wins us his, God's atonement. We respect the life and the death or sacrifice of all creatures. Okay, so that seems to be the principle underlying don't eat blood. How do we apply that today? Most of us don't eat blood, but some of us Chinese, some of us like to. But but now let's think about the New Testament. Let's have a look at how the New Testament picks this up. And here is another example, I think, of Jesus' very daring, non-literal application of Scripture. In John chapter 6, Jesus says what must have sounded terribly abhorrent to a Jew. I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life. Now think about it. It's almost as if Jesus has turned the command upside down. Whereas in the past, it's don't eat blood because you want to respect life and respect atonement. Jesus said, you've got to drink my blood. <laughs> okay, sure, of course, he's speaking symbolically, but for him to use that kind of imagery is clearly, is it contradictory? Or in fact, is he really fulfilling and reinforcing the same principles in Leviticus 17? Because Jesus' point is, in order for you to find atonement, you need my blood. You need to drink my blood. That seems to be what Jesus is saying. You have no life if you don't drink my blood. So once again, Jesus speaking about blood and how it brings atonement speaking of his blood, but in his case, drink his blood, not literally, but by drinking his blood, we receive life. So again, Jesus here does seem to be emphasizing both how blood speaks of the cost of atonement and the importance of life. So I'd suggest to you that in fact, Jesus is interpreting and applying Leviticus 17, uh, and being true to its principles. It's to teach us the cost of atoning our souls. And the cost was the blood of Jesus. Not just the blood of animals, but the blood of Jesus. It teaches us to respect life. Leviticus says respect life by not eating blood because blood symbolizes life. Jesus says drink my blood because life is so precious and this is true life by eating or drinking my blood. So don't eat blood, drink it. Whichever way it goes, the key principle is appreciate the cost of atonement for the uh, uh, that is whether it's the life of an animal or the life of the Lord Jesus that has won us this wonderful uh, promise of atonement and we need to respect life just as I think that's what we do when we celebrate Holy Communion and we drink the blood of Christ uh, we remind ourselves of the of the tremendous sacrifice of the cost of atonement. It also reminds us of the importance of, of, of life and receiving life and we respect it like that. Jesus' blood is his life. We drink his blood in order to receive his life in ours. We respect Jesus' life as we drink his blood. We appreciate the sacrifice of his life 
uh, that want us atonement. Okay, so the principles, whether we choose not to eat blood or whether we choose to regularly drink the blood of Jesus, let's give thanks for God's atonement of our lives and let's respect the life and death of all creatures. Okay, so I've given you uh, suggestions as to how I think we are meant to read Scripture and, and uh, specifically some of the verses in Leviticus, chapters in Leviticus, and how they might inform and edify our thinking, the way we relate to God and one another. Any questions? I've given you also in your notes, and not for us to do tonight, but if some of you like to, this is what I do at TTC. I've given you a sample letter of someone who wrote it, I think making fun of Leviticus. And you'll see there in one of the, in that letter, the appendix, one of the points is, I know from Leviticus 11 that touching the skin of a dead pig makes me unclean. But may I stay, still play football if I wear gloves? Uh, this one you need to know. In America, they sometimes call that rugby, that ball a pig skin. I mean, it's actually not made from pig skin, <laughs> but they call it pig skin. And so anyway, this, uh, this letter, this guy is trying to say, if this is pig skin, am I allowed to touch a football? Anyway, this whole letter, have a read. It's basically trying to say, okay, if we are meant to apply Leviticus literally, how do we do this? How do we do that? Uh, you know? Uh, and so you'll see, these are the sort of questions I, some people cite. Leviticus and other parts of scriptures to say, I think what I actually think the, the, the person who wrote this is making fun of scripture, trying to say, uh, how can we, how can any uh, intelligent person today, rational person today, apply scripture? How, 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 why would anyone want to believe the Bible? Because the Bible has all these kind of crazy commands, etc. So that's the tone. In a sarcastic way, that's the tone of the, of the letter. So, um, think about it. Through the card. Oh, but incidentally, this thing about the pigskins is, for many people, some people, this is still a very real issue. Muslim seeks refund for shoes lined with pigskin. Uh, you know, because, hey, the Muslims also have this rule, you're not allowed to touch the pig. So, if his shoe has, is lined with pigskin, he's tra trying to seek a refund. Anyway, how would you respond if your friend or whatever came up with these sort of questions? Hey, your Bible, Leviticus, this says this, and Leviticus, this says that. How would you respond? Try and give a clear answer because, you know, you're probably just having coffee with your friend, so you don't have time to go into long discussion. Try and articulate something in 200 words or less, or 250. How would you respond? Next week, if the Lord tarries, I come back to you. I'll tell you my response in less than 200 words, if you haven't already guessed it. But I've been trying to introduce you to the way I think Scripture is meant to be read and not misunderstood. And many people misunderstand Scripture and therefore either ridicule it or apply it wrongly. Any other questions before we close? Okay, good. Then we finish on time. Okay, let's put our hands together. Thank you, President, again. Uh, let's stand as we uh, close this time. Lord, whether we were able to digest, uh, understand everything, we pray that, Lord, you help us to continue to meditate upon your word. Importantly, Lord, what is very clear to us is that Jesus is our atonement. It is our faith in him, in his blood, that gives us life. 
And so Lord, even if you don't understand everything, help us never forget this very important truth that Jesus is our atonement. So Lord, we thank you for the teaching from Track President. We ask for your blessings upon him as he continues to do the work of ministry and to lead the entire Track Conference. And for us, Lord, as we make our way home from here, we ask for journey mercies. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.